At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. On the hit podcast Heavyweight, Jonathan Goldstein facilitates difficult conversations with empathy and self-deprecating humor. The New Yorker recently included Heavyweight on its list of the best podcasts for 2022. And later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes talks with Jonathan Goldstein about how his award-winning podcast comes together. Plus, our series highlighting local musicians. Speaking of music... Today features singer-songwriter Butterfly Fields. First, standing at the intersection of art and sustainability, Scraplata Creative Reuse is a nonprofit organization on a mission to make the world more accessible, beautiful, and sustainable. Through donated art supplies, community-led workshops, and classes, Scraplata provides sustainable, low-cost art supplies to Atlanta artists, teachers, and students. Janelle Dawkins is a Georgia native and executive director of Scraplata. She joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hello, I'm so honored to be here on City Lights. Delighted to have you, Janelle. And please tell us about your journey into the world of art and sustainability. I started as a kid that just liked to craft. I wanted to be a fashion designer and I like to sew. Like I used to, I used to go to Joanne's, of course, but there were times where I went to um, different people in my community who liked to sew and they were older. And as they got rid of their, their craft supplies, they gave them to me. So I ended up with vintage sewing patterns from the 60s and 70s and all of these cool fabrics and things. And it was just a fun experience for me. As I got older, I took a turn into fashion merchandising 
And I ended up at the University of Georgia where I studied fashion merchandising because I wanted to make the fashion industry more sustainable. In my journey, I ended up going to graduate school where I volunteered at a Creative for You Center in Greensboro called Reconsider Goods. And while I was there, I thought to myself, um, shouldn't Atlanta have one of these? <laughs> and then, <laughs> then I found out about Scott Lanta. I connected with um, our founder, Susan Roy, and she was looking for a executive director to lead the charge with opening Scott Lanta's doors and getting us our first permanent physical location. And that's how I joined the Scott Lanta team in November 2021. And it's been a wonderful journey ever since. It's so important to reuse materials as we know our planet is in crisis. And I admire that for all your love of fashion, beginning when you were very young, you realized the importance of conserving materials and not just discarding them. I read that you studied ethical fashion in Ghana and got a sustainability certificate. And and then you started a jewelry line, Joforia Jewels. Great title. <laughs> Thank you. Do you still craft jewelry? I still make jewelry and I've tried to get into more sustainable materials like um the thing about thrifting metals it's sometimes hard to know the content if it's lead or nickel free so oh. i decided to experiment and go into weaving t-shirts to make necklaces like braided necklaces and my goal for 2023 is to go into more found objects and like i'm really challenging myself as an artist to make more art from things that we wouldn't consider art Oh, that's fantastic. Thinking about your jewelry design and studying ethical fashion in Ghana, I wondered how those experiences inform the work you do with creative reuse today. Um, so my time in Ghana was very interesting. It was um, a three-week-long Maymester with the University of Georgia and this partnership has actually been going on for almost over a decade with the University of Georgia and is based in Accra. And it's a multidisciplinary program. And I went during the program's 11th year. And it was so interesting with the way the professors said that their mindsets changed as they um, continued this partnership, where it started off where the school went in with the prospect of thinking that they were going to change and help these organizations in Ghana. And really, we've learned so much from the craftsmen who we work with for um, designing the clothes with the different nonprofit organizations we um, partner with to learn more about the different like community issues across parts of Ghana. And it was very inspiring to see how people navigate entrepreneurship in Ghana because they have a very high rate of entrepreneurship because job opportunities are so limited. So people have to make their own from their own resources. And so I saw people making pencil pouches from plastic bottles, using old tires to make into bags and quilting dresses and things from fabric scraps. It was just so 
inspiring and it really reminded me that there there are solutions out there for our climate crisis and we really have to just sit and think and also be able to listen to other people because in Ghana they're really about community and the concept of sankofa which means to go back and take and, and it's learning from your past to build your future just the community feeling that I got there um, because I am um, I'm a, am African American and connecting reconnecting with my roots made me feel so powerful and to come back to America and with this mindset that you know I don't have to sit and solve this crisis, this climate crisis myself. I can sit and work with other people and find solutions and find like creative solutions. It doesn't all have to be boring and scientific. It can be fun and beautiful and bright. Mm. I, I think it sounds like your time in Ghana was transformational. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with Chanel Dawkins, the executive director of Scraplanta Creative Reuse. What demographic does Scraplanta serve through its programs? We have a board of directors, and several of our first, um, I guess, generation of our board members were educators. So we were able to reach out to a lot of preschools and elementary schools. And right now, our main demographic consists of teachers, mainly in DeKalb County and lower grades. But as Scrap Balanta grows, we do want to let people know that we are not just a resource for early elementary schoolers. Art can be incorporated in all grade levels, even on the collegiate levels and just that, that life learning level. And we are starting to reach more people who do art classes with senior citizens and different groups that might not be traditionally represented in the art world. And we also do just serve artists. If you want to create in any type of way, you are welcomed and embraced in Scott Lannis doors so you can get started on your hobby for very low prices. Hmm. What have you observed about accessibility to art supplies based on socioeconomic status? Well, I think about my own experience growing up because there are a lot of times where I started using like the scrappy materials for my, in my art practice because instead of buying paint palettes, we just use styrofoam egg cartons to mix and preserve the colors. Even in like the public school sector, like when I started taking public classes in public school, the art programs were underfunded. So there were times where we had to like share all of this paint, like, or not that much paint with um, almost 50 or 100 students. And it's just interesting how hard it is for certain people who want to become better artists, but they can't. And with Scrap Blanta, we really want to give people the opportunity to learn how to make art and have like have the freedom to be bad at making art for them to get better because a lot of kids especially children of color when we want to be artistic our families discourage it because they don't see it making money immediately or if you don't if not automatically born with that talent then it seems like a waste of time or resources for parents who already don't really have that much disposable income to invest in a child's creativity and with Scrap Lena we are going to have art classes and classes are going to be sliding scale because we do know there are people who 
are kind enough to pay what they can and then pay for others. And then there are other people who just want to understand this art and get better at it. And mm-hmm. we shouldn't ha- make money a barrier for them. That is so admirable. We talked about what you learned and are continuing to apply from your visit to Ghana. What were some of the things you learned from traveling to creative reuse centers in the Southeast United States? Yes. So when I left my previous position at Reconsider Goods and I was starting at Scrap Lena, I took some time to just travel across the Southeast to different creative reuse centers. And it was a wonderful experience. Like beforehand, I just reached out to the executive directors and said, hey, I'm going to come to your store this day. Um, Can't you have time to talk and tell me about your process and how you guys got started? And everyone has been wonderful. (laughs) I feel like I made friends with other directors. Some creative reuse centers are younger, like like closer to Scotland's age, I guess. Um, Like there's Recraft in Greenville, South Carolina, and Spare Parts in San San Antonio, Texas. And both of these creative reuse centers, they started their brick and mortar operations during the pandemic. And they were very helpful with telling me about how do you bring customers in during a time like that? And how do you work with like smaller retail spaces? And then on the opposite side, I was able to go to Austin Creative Reuse, which was housed in a former office depot. So (laughs) they had a lot of space to play with and um, they have a huge bustling team. Um, I think they have about 20 employees. And it's like that, it shows me where Scrap Planet can go and how I want us to grow to be a workplace that is family-friendly and inclusive. And also what we can do with the space that we have. Because some um, creative reuse centers, they just have the store. Some have the art galleries in them, like um, in Nashville, Turnip Green Creative Reuse has an art gallery. And, you know, we have a lot of space with Scatlanta, but I do want to think about just where we're going to be after our lease ends in a couple of years. And, you know, as we grow and make more connections across Atlanta. I didn't realize you went beyond neighboring states if you were in San Antonio and Austin you went all the way to Texas and certainly brought back a lot of great examples. Something I just loved was seeing online Scrap Lanta's periodic table of creative reuse. Would you describe it and tell us how one uses it? Yes. So this idea came from um, Recraft in Greenville, South Carolina. The executive director shared their periodic table of creative for use with me. And I thought, hmm, this is great. This is a great visual because people often ask what to donate. And sometimes instead of just having that list of things that people, you know, you can read and read and read, but sometimes it's like just seeing like, what is this? How can people make art with it? And so I did some couple of, a couple of modifications for things. Like I swapped out a couple of elements and I also colorized it by um, category because I- That, I know that people... is very snappy. I, I <laughs> applaud that. The colors are very engaging. Thank you. I, I think people needed to understand like 
we have different categories of crafting and we're not just fabric store, we're not just paper craft. We're not Habitat for Humanity Restore, but we will accept small like wood pieces and nails and stuff like just getting that better picture of what we accept as donations. So what kind of art supplies do you think should be in every home, whether one <laughs> identifies as an artist or not? I really think everyone needs a glue gun in their life. Like, <laughs> I do not have one. In fact, they scare me. Aren't they lethal? Um, you can burn yourself, but they're so convenient. <laughs> like the glue bonds, they stick to a lot of things. And then I also heard that you can melt crayons in them and make wax art with them. Like glue guns are just that essential like item for those really good fixes that you need in life. <laughs> okay, here I was thinking colored pencils, crayons. <laughs> You're taking me far beyond that, Janelle. <laughs> well, that's, I think that's the point of Scrap Planet. We want to challenge everyone to unleash their inner artist because I have a lot of volunteers who are actually, we're engineering students, and they just look, we're looking for community service opportunities, and they come to Scrap Planet and they learn more about art supplies in general, and they're more comfortable with creating. Oh, I think that's great. You're activating the other part of their scientific brain. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I've read there have been stops and starts. What's the status of Scrap Lantern now in terms of opening a physical building, a brick-and-mortar place? So we are... Currently open. We opened our retail space in November 2022. And currently we have the front part part of our store, where it's a retail. And then we are working on our classroom area where we just painted the walls. We had some light panels that we got donated to us um, a couple weeks ago. And now we're fundraising for the installation of those light panels since we need like electricians to come in and rewire some things. And then we're going to get flooring installed. So our classroom will be open in late January. And once that happens, we're just going to be open um, Thursdays through Sundays where people can shop, they can craft. We're planning on having some classes and a schedule published for our February classes soon. And with that, people are going to be able to just learn different skills. I've been speaking with some people about having classes in Spanish and even having like ASL classes where people can learn different crafts, vocabulary, and sign language, and even just like regular things in everyday life so people can talk with more members of the deaf community. Janelle Dawkins, the executive director of Scraplanta, Creative Reuse. More information about the nonprofit is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, our series highlighting local musicians. Speaking of music, today features Butterfly Fields. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. 
Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Butterfly Fields. I'm a recording artist and singer-songwriter currently based in Atlanta, Georgia. I make music to help you free yourself and love yourself for being you. I've been singing and writing songs all my life. My passion for music started really young. My dad was a DJ with Creme de la Creme Taste. We listened to everything great, all the classics, all the hidden gems. Shout out to my dad for introducing me to the artists and writers that shaped me sonically and artistically still to this day. I started recording professionally four years ago when I met my wife, producer, photographer, and videographer, Nor Kim for Life. The rest is history. Both my parents were in the military, and we moved around and traveled a lot growing up. So my music is influenced by all the different places I've been and all the different places I've lived. After my dad retired from the military, my family settled down in Atlanta. I moved away for a little while, but I have a twin who has a bunch of beautiful children that are just getting older every day. They're so cute, they would make anyone want to move to Atlanta just to be able to see them more often. I find inspiration everywhere I look. Real life, real stories, real people inspire me. My family inspires me, my friends inspire me, my wife inspires me for sure. Even random strangers inspire me. I'm an empath and I'm very observant of vibes and energy. Prove It is the first single from my debut EP, Butterfly Summer. Definitely check that out. It's a no-skips kind of vibe. 
Prove It takes you back to the invigorating thousands R&B and pop times, but still gives you that futuristic and now element of an evolved, independent baddie who takes charge and knows what she wants. Prove It is what you put on when you're ready for the passion you've been manifesting to come in fruit before your eyes. I'm always in the process of working on something secretive. If you want to stay in the loop on all things Butterfly, the best place to start is my official website, ButterflyFeels.com. Anointed is coming soon to all music and streaming platforms. You can check out the events page on my website to find out where you can vibe with me next in person. Butterfly Fields and our series, Speaking of Music. More information about this singer-songwriter is on the website, wabe.org slash speaking up. Coming up, Jonathan Goldstein takes us behind the scenes of his award-winning podcast, Heavyweight. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. At some point, you may have heard the advice that you shouldn't live in the past, but instead embrace the present. It's good guidance, but what if your past still haunts you and you can't get around it on your own? Well, that's when you bring in a heavyweight, or more specifically, the award-winning radio and podcast producer and host, Jonathan Goldstein. On Goldstein's hit podcast, Heavyweight, he facilitates difficult conversations with his trademark combination of empathy and self-deprecating humor. City Lights senior producer Kim Droves recently caught up with Jonathan Goldstein to discuss how the complex podcast comes together. Goldstein began by expressing gratitude for making the New Yorker's list of the best podcasts of 2022. It's gratifying after having, I mean, we're going into our eighth season. So um, after doing it for seven years, it's nice to still be remembered and included. No doubt. Well, when looking at your career path, it's easy to see some of the connections that got you to where you are today. You were a producer and writer on NPR's This American Life, which gave way to your award-winning CBC radio show, Wiretap, after which you started the Heavyweight Podcast in 2016. Will you share your inspiration for creating Heavyweight? Yeah, and, and I should also say that, you know, prior to that, I mean, I didn't do much. Uh, <laughs> you know, I only, at the time, it, it seemed relatively old because uh ira glass had such young producers and i was showing up i was about 30 and i had spent the previous 10 years just kind of really telemarketing and and trying to learn how to write uh, and trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life but uh heavyweight 
grew out of, I think there was a common denominator among the stories that I seemed to gravitate towards uh, as a producer on This American Life, stories that dealt with regret. Um, a blueprint for Heavyweight might have been a, a story that I did in the early 2000s on This American Life, in which I found myself so regretful of everything that comes out of my mouth <laughs> that I decided to spend the entire day recording every conversation that I'd had, everything that I was doing that day in order to replay the tape and kind of have a second go at it and, uh, you know, get a chance at a redo. And the episode that they built around that story was called What I Should Have Said. So in many ways, Heavyweight is an offshoot of, you know, what I should have said. Oh, wow. That does sound like a way, though, to um, to ruminate and fester, recording yourself the entire day. I know. Yeah. And, and the takeaway from that story, if I'm remembering correctly, was just sort of like, once is enough. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it, it was fine to go through it once. I didn't need to relive it. Um, and it doesn't usually get much better in, in the reliving anyway. And like a lot of, I guess, neurotic, self-conscious people, often I'm concerned about something that might have offended somebody, you know, so it was the, the wrong thing to say in that sense. But really, I think often uh, what I find with uh, heavyweight is that the, the redoing is more for the person who's doing the redoing. Sure. Uh, more so than it is for the people, you know, that they believe that maybe they hurt or offended. Usually, uh, like the reoccurring theme that I see is that usually the person wasn't thinking about it as much as they were. Absolutely. I have noticed that theme as well. So as you mentioned, you just wrapped up your seventh season. And this season, you brought us stories about a vanishing bookstore, a disappearing cousin, a beatboxer from beyond the grave. And maybe my favorite of the year was the search for the decades old photo that captured a first date. Jonathan, when you tell these stories, they are with such great heart and humor, but sometimes they take unexpected turns that can be quite sad. So I'm wondering, how have you learned to navigate deep waters like this without any formal training as a therapist? Well, I get a lot of help for one thing. I mean, I have like wonderful producers who are just very thoughtful and intelligent. So I feel like I'm never kind of in it alone. I think there's, you know, there's different parameters to it than therapy. It isn't, I guess, as holistic. It's It has aspects of therapy in that, like, we're revisiting the past to try to rectify something about the present, but it's also more quest-based, mm. you know, like there is one specific thing that might have ripple effects and, and like, open up onto bigger issues, but we have to sort of decide where to close the door. And and also sometimes things just don't work out. That's a part of the the scary thing. Uh, the flip side of the scary thing is that sometimes in not working out, they become better than they would have otherwise been had you achieved that goal in a straight linear path. Like the one that you mentioned with the photo, had we found the photo immediately, it would have been a five minute episode. So it, it's oftentimes the uh, the barriers that come up, the moments in the story where you feel like, oh, all is lost. There's no way we're going to achieve this thing that complicates things and, and enriches them, you know, kind of makes it deeper. Uh, sometimes in not getting this, I mean, this sounds a little cliched, but in not getting the thing that you set out for, you find something else. And to witness people going through that, to be allowed access to that, it's a special thing that we you know, on the, the team, we don't, we don't take lightly. Mm. Have you found good ways to to shake off the emotion 
when you're done with an episode? We have to sort of decide where to close the door. Like, you know, sometimes people write in and they ask wanting to hear about how a subject is doing now. Um, Like in the very first episode, my dad, who was 80 at the time, wanted to kind of hash things out with his brother, who was 85. They both hadn't spoken to each other in possibly like 40, 50 years. My father and I made a road trip to Florida to see his older brother, Sheldon. And um, they answered a lot of questions for themselves about their upbringing, uh, about their parents, about why they stopped speaking. And so people would write in and want to know, so are they still in touch now? What's their relationship like? And I would always kind of respond by saying, you know, they'll they'll always have Paris kind of thing. They'll always <laughs> have that wonderful weekend where they got to talk. And they do talk occasionally. They'll talk on the phone like once a year or something, you know, but it's more than it's more than they had been talking. And they'll always have that weekend. And I think that speaks to how much your stories are touching people that they want to know what's going on with your father and his brother like that. Yeah, that's connection right there. And that's very cool. Yeah. To me, one of the beautiful things about your podcast being successful and having longevity is that it seems to provide you the opportunity to really take your time with stories. And Mm -hmm. in certain episodes, I've heard you mention not hearing back from someone for a year or even two. So how do you and your team stay connected to stories when people aren't, let's say, timely communicators? Well, and and that's the built-in problem of the the show, which makes it kind of, I guess, what you would called not very cost effective. It's like you're trying to get people who have been putting off something for like my father had been intending to, you know, get back in touch with his brother for years, but he just needed a nudge. And and sometimes that's what I'm doing. But, you know, there's a fine line between giving a nudge and being a nudge and people, <laughs> there's a reason why they don't want to do this particular thing and why they've been stuck for so long. And so to unstick them, sometimes it it really does take time. And there have been episodes that have just sat on a shelf for a couple of years. And I thought, oh, it's interesting. It feels like the beginning of a story, maybe even the middle of a story, but we don't really have an ending. And sometimes they get unstuck and sometimes they don't. But but what's exciting about it, and again, you know, scary, is to sort of like be there with someone as something is unfolding. That's to me the best kind of story is to capture these these moments or a process in tape. A- again, I mean, more cost effective kind of podcast is someone telling a story in retrospect about something that happened. And there's a lot of really great podcasts like that. But uh, I guess the stuff that I like the best is when something is kind of unfolding before you mm-hmm. and something is is happening in tape. And with the story with my father and 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 his brother Sheldon, there were moments in that story where I felt like this may maybe this was a bad idea. Mm. You know, I think this is upsetting to my father, and maybe he doesn't need this. And to come out on the other end of that is very exciting, uh, and to share that with people is very exciting, but also scary. Yeah, understandably, the first year of Heavyweight seemed to rely mostly on your friends and family. But nowadays, you have a submission area on your website. Yeah. And most stories you share are from people previously unknown to you. Right. When you're looking through the submissions, what are you looking for? What makes a good heavyweight story? This is a good question because I've I've gotten better intuition. I think for one thing, um, it should be 
written by the person who wants to do it. Oftentimes in the beginning, we would get emails from people saying, I'm writing this for my friend. I'm writing this for my um, father. And you'd think, oh, okay, same difference, but it's not. It, you really need a lot of buy-in from the from the person. They really have to want to do it and be along for the ride. I think sometimes it's just sort of, sometimes like we just get emails that really pique our curiosity that are written very interestingly, bizarrely. <laughs> uh, sometimes um, they just seem... I don't know. Sometimes it doesn't come across in the email and we talk to them or my producers talk to them and there's something that we connect with about them. I think having someone who can speak from the vantage point of the person that they were in the past, like that, that there isn't the kind of ironic distance where they're sort of like, um, oh, that's how I felt back then. Isn't that crazy? But they're like really able to inhabit the flesh of that person that they once were and have sympathy for that person. I think that usually makes the process more emotionally rich. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And honestly, to your question about being a therapist, I mean, I feel like sometimes you don't need to be especially talented as an interlocutor, which, you know, I, I, I purport to be. It's more like sometimes you just need to provide a context uh, or, or create some kind of forum, which the show is, to allow people the space to contemplate some of these things. And, and it's and it's fairly universal. I mean, people that I meet are always like, oh, yeah, I have a heavyweight. This is my heavyweight. And maybe the, the whole show came out of a secret desire of my own to have someone kind of like, you know, appear in my life and be like, you know, come take my hand. I'm going to we're going to correct the past sort of thing. You know, it's a form of wish fulfillment, maybe. And, and in terms of the therapist thing, I think like so, some emails feel very raw and you think, oh, you, you you know, I'll I'll write back and be like, I you know, I think like maybe have you considered talking to a therapist? So yeah, I guess I do say that they, there should be like an emotional depth, but I think, yeah, I guess there also has to be, now that I'm talking it through, there also should be probably a little bit of distance, enough distance to to have some perspective on it, I think. Because you you don't want you don't want to feel like you or the audience will know something about this person that they don't know about themselves. Right. You, know, that, that you don't want there to be that kind of, uh, is that an instance of dramatic irony, you know, because it, it could be uncomfortable. Yeah. You kind of want to be on the same page. Very good point. If you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes speaking with Jonathan Goldstein, the host of the hit podcast, Heavyweight. So typical heavyweight episodes involve a series of investigative conversations and phone calls. And previously, I mentioned your early days with NPR and CBC. And then you briefly mentioned your time as a telemarketer. Are there any skills you acquired from that job that you still use today? I guess so. Yeah, because my producers tell me that I'm always up for any kind of call. Like a lot of times in the process, we have to make some fairly weird, uncomfortable calls. Um, one time I was doing a story about an old therapist of mine from when I was in my 20s, and I wanted to speak to other patients of hers. And the only person I could, you know, I had this memory of seeing an old professor of, a professor of mine at the time in the waiting room. And I called him up 30 years later to talk to him about it. And that was like a super weird phone call to make. And it's not a regular phone call to make that, no. that you know, that people make in life. And, and it makes me nervous, but I don't think it makes me as nervous as maybe it would for some people. And maybe a part of that was just making a lot of phone calls as a telemarketer <laughs> and interrupting people's lives in awkward ways when they're making dinner and getting yelled at and getting hung up on. I don't think it bothers me as much as it seems to bother other people. Yeah. So maybe it prepared me in that sense. And also trying to keep people on the phone 
Mm. Again, being somewhat of a nudge, like they would be like, look, I'm busy and I would have to, you know, be like, well, wait, have I told you about, you know, I was selling the newspaper, newspaper subscriptions. And I'd be like, well, we're we're running a a sale right now, you know, and you could get the uh, the full week's paper for the cost of just the weekends. And, you know, so there's an element of that where you just sort of like it's a little bit like rodeo where you're trying to stay on the horse, keep them on the phone because maybe they'll kind of warm to you. So there's that aspect. So, yeah, getting comfortable with being annoying, I would say, if I had to put it into a sentence. Yeah, for sure. So season seven just wrapped and I don't want to give away any spoilers from the season because heavyweight definitely is something you want to experience as it happens. And I don't want to reveal endings of a new season, but I would really love to discuss the two part episode Barbara from season six. Oh, Oh Mm -hmm. my goodness. So this episode started out very innocently as you trying to track down a person your mother-in-law had met while working abroad in Copenhagen in 1968. And then the story takes a crazy turn and develops into like a true crime podcast. So what was it like for you working that far out of your normal wheelhouse? Well, I I, I will say that in, in my experience that if you keep digging and you keep or you keep marching in one direction eventually you will discover interesting things because life is interesting and you know surprising and all things are connected and you just you know if you can show those some of those connections you're doing good work in the case of this particular episode it started as something super small it was during covid we were doing these shorter episodes i thought oh maybe this will be an interesting uh little story maybe five minutes. She, as you say, like she had met this woman abroad 50 years earlier and um, came across an obituary for her that didn't seem to jive with what she believed she knew about this woman. And I thought I'd make a few phone calls. We'd get to the bottom of it. We'd find out what the story was. But yeah, it ended up going in directions that we wouldn't have anticipated because, you know, like we're not a a murder podcast operation, but in this particular case, there was a murder involved and it, we, we got into it sort of sideways. Was there any point during that, that you were like, oh, I don't know if this is our story anymore? Did it make you uncomfortable? Yeah, it did. It definitely made me uncomfortable. Kind of, I don't know, should I summarize it? Should I say spoiler alert? Please. My mother-in-law wanted to find out why the facts of this woman's obituary were not only not in agreement with what she believed she knew about her, but kind of like completely contradictory. And what she learned was that nine months after she had spent this wonderful summer with this woman in Europe, that this woman returned home to America where she ended up uh, violently murdering her mother. And that was something I didn't know as I was pursuing the story. And I I happened to kind of, you know, making many phone calls, ended up calling one of the commenters on the, you know, electronic obituary that we found online. And one of the commenters happened to be an ex-fiance of hers who thought I was calling from some kind of sensational podcast that wanted to report on this. At the time, it was kind of a famous murder that rocked this town Um, It was in all the Cincinnati papers. And eventually while talking, he realized that I had no idea about it. And in that moment, I think I felt out of my depth because, you know, I didn't want to be seen, not that there's anything wrong, especially with those kind of podcasts that focus on, you know, murders and stuff like that. But 
it's not the kind of thing I, I, I especially drawn to. And I felt, I don't know, I guess I, it felt funny to be perceived as, as a little bit of like, you know, a media vulture or something. And, um, but I think once he realized that I had innocently stumbled into it, this ex-fiance of hers became more open to talking. You know, it was an interesting series of events or, or surprising series of events, you know, once murder becomes a part of the plot. But I, again, I, I think like mostly we didn't know if it was for us because we didn't really know what the stakes were. We didn't know how it tied back to the present, you know, which is often part of the the podcast. It was an interesting fact pattern and sequence of events, but what were the stakes? And so we just kept digging and digging until we found those things, you know, and we were able to sort of recreate or or, or get some insight into this woman's life. Yeah, your persistence and ability to bend during that episode came out loud and clear. It's fascinating. And I kept thinking that there would be a point that you'd be like, I'm just going to let this go. But I love the fact that you followed it through to the end, because that's when it seemed very much in the heavyweight wheelhouse. Yeah, I don't know. I guess in the race between like discomfort and curiosity, uh, curiosity won or the feeling that this might in some way be important, or people might find this enriching. I don't know. I'm glad that curiosity won. I get a lot of help too. Like, uh, you know, the producer of that story, Stevie Lane, had such tenacity. I mean, like she didn't leave any stone unturned. I mean, she read through thousands of pages of court manuscript. Oh my gosh. You know, and even getting a hold of it was hard. You know, having to kind of like find the right clerk who was willing to do the extra work to dig it up and you know wow all of that stuff yeah yeah all of that stuff like for that all to all that research to be in place so that you know when i get into the driver's seat and make these calls and that there's just so much behind the scenes stuff you know, that has to happen. You do have a really good team. And I noticed that your producers, Stevie Lane, who just mentioned, and Khalila Holt have been hosting yeah. occasional stories yeah. and creating fantastic audio. Was it difficult yeah. for you to share the microphone in that way? No, I think at this point, I, I'm happy for it. I don't know, like, I think maybe at different points in my life, I think when I was producing, you know, at This American Life, there were times, you know, as a producer, you end up producing writers, and you sometimes end up producing first time writers. And I, I did feel some frustration, you know, I would feel like, ah, oh, this would be just, I would find this more fun to not have to kind of like coach them through it. But if I could just do it mm -hmm. myself, I know how I would want this story to sound and stuff like that. But now I feel less that way. And I and I really enjoy their voices, uh, you know, conversationally working with them and stuff like that. And so I'm curious about, you know, what they make of things. And I, I, and I find the editorial process very interesting. You know, like we have a very sort of, um, it's a very fluid process where we're all kind of like working on scripts all together. And at this point, as the show continues on, there's a lot of co-authorship where we're both writing in documents and stuff like that. So I don't know. I guess it it doesn't feel like that much a break. For like it's it's been such a kind of gradual evolution to this point where they're uh, they're on the mic and hosting their own episodes. Like it it feels. It feels it, it kind of all feels of a piece, I guess. Yeah, I mean, tonally it is. And I think it's one of the luxuries that you have of having a podcast that you've been able to have longtime producers on because it does sound like their voice was already ingrained into the show. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember when uh, Kalila did her first story, it really felt like a part of the universe. Of right. the like, not only is she a good writer, but it shares like the DNA, like the sense of humor and stuff like that. You know, like I'm deadpan, but she's like out deadpanning <laughs> totally. me, you know. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So for the unfamiliar, heavyweight episodes always start out with a phone call to your friend, Jackie Cohen. And these calls are usually pretty ridiculous. And they have an overall theme that in general, Jackie finds you annoying. And in general, you enjoy annoying Jackie. Does that sound about right? No, that's about it. <laughs> Why did you yeah. decide to incorporate your friend Jackie into heavyweight? Uh, it was kind of a last minute move. Um, in the With the first episode, when I was working on the pilot, I had a much more elaborate conceptual opening that we completely produced, which was about a minute of me riding a New York subway train. And you know, the voice that comes over the PA system sure. that uh, asks you to stand clear of the closing yep. doors. Um, I had a friend who sounded just like that voice <laughs> and we were going to have him was kind of like the, the voice of God as you know, transfigured through this PA system and I would have conversations with him as I was right. You know, and it was just a lot of sound design and it was high concept and would have like been like producing a whole other podcast each week. And so in the last minute, I just called up Jackie to tell her about my podcast. And she was so impatient and annoyed that I just continued to do it, you know, and people for the most part seem to enjoy it. Because she is fully herself. I mean, and is fully kind of annoyed. What? I'm trying to remember. Do you have any celebrity impressions that you do? No. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Is it healthier to take a bath or a shower? Is it healthier to take a bath or a shower? From a medical perspective. Hey, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? No. When we were back in elementary school, because we go way back, yeah. Would you have ever thought that one day I would have a podcast? Yeah, no, I, I would not say that. I foresaw a future for you, Johnny. Did you just say I didn't foresee a future for you, or <laughs> I didn't foresee that future for you? <laughs> oh, I meant that future. Did you really think I didn't have a future at all? <laughs> I was a good eater, stayed out of trouble, pretty good at tetherball. Yeah. Hey, what are you going to say at my funeral? Oh, shut up. Here, let me set you up. And now coming to the podium, Dr. Jackie Cohen. I'm not doing this. I can me. give you notes. I'm not, I'm, Speak from the heart. I can't do it. Makes you too sad? It makes me feel too annoyed. So you're going to be too annoyed to give me a eulogy at my funeral? I, I might, listen, I might jot down a few words. Would the word genius be in there? God, no. <laughs> I mean, last season I was really, I was, I didn't know whether she would even pick up the phone. I was looking into Jackie, just like, you know, who is Jackie Cohen? And realized that you had done uh, this American Life story about her at one point, or she fell into a story that was about Mean Girls. Yes. Uh, like, it's so fun. Yeah, it's true. Here's another example of how, like, you know, something on This American Life from 20 years ago was a blueprint. But yeah, I did this story about the episode was called The Allure of the Mean Friend mm -hmm. and like why we're so attracted to people who are often kind of, you know, mean with us. Uh, yeah, it was all there. It was sort of like an exploration of our friendship because we've been friends since we we're kids. People wonder 
you know, is she my wife? Is she my <laughs> sister? But we're, uh, but we're just old friends. And I think, I think secretly she enjoys the conversation and I enjoy making her <laughs> laugh. Yeah. She doesn't like being in the spotlight as she would call it. People have approached her even, I think, because she's a doctor and people at the hospital that she works with have been like, hey, is that you? Are you the Jackie? And she has said no. She'll just say no. No, I'm not. Yeah. I don't even know what type of doctor she is, but I'll tell you, sometimes when I hear you make that phone call, I visualize her in like full scrubs getting ready for a <laughs> surgery being right. like, what yeah. is it? She might be. Yeah. Yeah. I know. She doesn't have time for this kind of like nonsense. Oh, but I'm glad she's making time. Uh, I like that dynamic. Uh, yeah. It's a fun way to start the show. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm glad. Yeah. So coming up on season eight, tell me about the future. What's next for you? Do not know. We don't have anything planned. It's exciting. It's scary. We have one story that we're going to return to that it needed, it required more time. Huh? I want, I'm wondering if I should, well, I, okay. I'll tell you about it because uh, it'll be a way to, for me to sort of like start thinking about it, wrapping my head okay. around it. It's the story and it's a little different than the other stories, but in the broadest strokes, it's the story of this guy. I, he might have not been more than 14 at the time who walked into a bank with a shotgun and robbed this bank. Mm. And now he's in his 40s, went on to have a fairly regular life, you know, uh, married, uh, good job. But he continues to think about that day and think about the people who were affected, mm. who were there, the customers, the you know, the the bank tellers whose lives he, you know, not only affected, but might have traumatized. And I think we're going to return to kind of an end of that day wow. from the viewpoints of the people involved. Heavyweight Jonathan Goldstein, speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes. More information about the award-winning podcast is on our website, wabe.org. Finally, today I'd like to send a special message to a recent donor. Happy birthday, Lori Dawson. We so appreciate your being part of our City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E.